No, sometimes I hear that kingdom kids are dismissed, and I feel like walking that way instead of this way. I mean, aren't I? Oh. Did you ever notice how kids learn by watching, by observing? Oh, they're keen. I read this story of a, a family that had been to church, and driving home from church, the dad started complaining about everything. Music's too loud. The sermon was too long. Announcements, too many. Building was too hot. People were unfriendly. On and on, and virtually everything about church. Till he heard his little son's voice. Well, Dad, you got to admit, it wasn't a bad show for a dollar. <laughs> we are talking about stewardship for a couple of weeks here. Why? Well, Initially, I thought, well, as we go through this transition time and just reevaluating where we are, where we need to be, it's just a good time to talk, talk about the fundamentals. And stewardship of everything is really about the fundamentals. And when I mean everything, I don't mean just the physical resources. We are stewards of the spiritual gift God has given to us. We are stewards of the world, the way of missions. Um, but we are stewards of what God has given to us. And I, I just want to see this as an opportunity for, for each of us to take stock. Where are we at? Um, are we in obedience to where God wants us to be? It would be a, a, a vast generalization to suggest that the Scriptures... Uh, teach that faithfulness leads us to peace and prosperity while rebellion leads us to exile, ruin, and poverty. You could probably make that case. Very generalized. But the scripture doesn't speak like that when it comes to specifics. We're going to take a look at that. Father, as we open the word of God, be our teacher. I don't know where each of us uh, learned about stewardship, learned about giving. Um, maybe it was from dads who were faithful in giving. Maybe we've been taught along the way. Maybe we haven't been taught. We're just thinking about these things. So, Lord, we're all over the place this morning. and You, Holy Spirit, know perfectly where each, each one is. So take these words from your word. And apply them perfectly to our need this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning as we talk about uh, stewardship, I want to look specifically at some, uh, some of the um, wisdom literature in the scriptures. We start off in the scriptures, the law, the Pentateuch, first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Um, then we go into a history portion, beginning at Joshua. In the Hebrew Bible, uh, well, first of all, in our Bibles, we say there's law and history and, and poetry and major prophets and minor prophets. In the, in the Jewish Bible, there are three divisions, the law and the prophets and the writings. Um, uh, 
I didn't get that right, I don't think. Law and the history in the writings. Hmm. I'll straighten it out. But we want to look at wisdom, which is under the, under the category, I believe in the Hebrew Bible that wisdom contains both what we call as poetry um, and probably some of the prophets as well. But wisdom, we want to look at Job and Psalms and Proverbs, especially this morning. Uh, Ecclesiastes is also part of wisdom literature that we looked at a little bit last week. And there's Song of Songs. Um, we won't look at that. That would be another six months to go through Song of Solomon. But all of these five, uh, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs, the perspective is likely from uh, those who were enormously rich, wealthy. Job, David, Solomon. Um, we have to realize that Proverbs especially are kind of pithy generalizations rather than promises. But when we want to learn about godly norms, we can also go to this wisdom literature, which, by the way, transcend any society and culture. Um, Let's look at Job for a little bit, for instance. Here is a man who we realize that was enormously wealthy. Some, some say that chronologically, uh, Job would probably be put back there before Abram. Um, but he was tremendously wealthy. And then he became impoverished and absolutely broken. And his, his friends came along with this idea that I just shared with you, this generalization that faithfulness leads to peace and prosperity and rebellion and sin leads to exile, ruin, and poverty. The latter is what his friends came with. And the, these friends, I should say it like this, these friends uh, came to Job and said, Job, you are a terrible sinner. You must have sinned greatly. And so you need to confess and God will heal. Straighten up, Job. Wouldn't you love having friends around like that when you're down and out? Well, Job's response, and, and the book of Job, they go through cycles. And the friends and Job, and the friends and Job, and they go through those cycles three different times. Job instead said, I am blameless. I have done nothing. God owes me an explanation. And so we go through this book. But, but, but something, is, something happened in the first part of Job that you and I know about. We get in on it, but Job didn't. We know what's going on, but Job doesn't, nor does his friend. We are told early in the book of Job that there was a scene in heaven and Satan was, was there in the presence of God. You say, how did Satan get up there? In the, in the presence of where God is, Satan was somehow allowed in. And I always had this in mind that, that uh, Satan came up to God and said, uh, hey, I've, I've kept an eye on your servant Job. And boy, if I could get at him, he wouldn't be so faithful. But that is not how it happened. Do you remember how it happened? God said, hey, Satan. Look at Job. Man, I, I, I struggle with that. 
God said. Look at Job. Satan says, yeah, well, he's, he's, he's a nice guy because look at all the stuff around him. Let me take a little bit of that away. Okay, have at it, Satan. I'm ripping my hair out. God, really? Have at it, Satan, but don't touch him. His life is in my hand. And so his family was destroyed. He lost his, lost his children, lost all his livestock, home, lost everything. But his beautiful, gentle wife, who came to him and said, Job, get it over with and die. I'm, I'm thinking how terrible a person. But on the other hand, here's a woman who lived through that brokenness with Job and said, Job, I hurt for you too. Just let God take you. Turn with me, if you would, to Job chapter 31. Oh, I haven't even thought about my button up here this morning. Here's the dad giving the money and the riches and the poverty, and here's a picture, uh, uh, drawing of Job. Job chapter 31. There's a portion of scripture there that that talks about uh, Job. Job explaining his own heart. Job chapter 31, verse 24. Job says, um, If I have made gold my trust, or called fine gold my confidence, if I have rejoiced because my wealth, wealth was abundant, or because my hand had found much, if I have looked at the sun when it shone, or the moon moving in splendor, and my heart was secretly enticed, and my mouth has kissed my hand. What that has in reference is kind of to a, if I've stepped out and seen the, the sun and the moon, and and I think this is referring to a to an older tradition, but uh, if I kiss my hand and somehow involved in the worship of the sun and moon, or even to kiss my hand and raise to say that I have I have done any of this. Verse 28, this, would, this also would be an iniquity to be punished by the judges, for I would have been false to God above. Job said, I have, I have kept the faith. Um, if I would have done all these things, then God should punish me. But I haven't. And by the way, we're, we're told a few other things at the first part of Job. We're told that he was wealthy. But God also looked at Job and said to Satan, my righteous servant, my righteous servant. That Already that tells us Job's three friends were misguided. Okay. Um, nice, Don. So thinking of misguided, we're going to talk about um, myths this morning, about wealth and myths. By the way, I, I, I don't... There may be some of you thinking here this morning, I'm not wealthy. If you make, I believe it is $25,000 up, you are, in the, you are in the top 25% in the world. And it goes on up. We are wealthy. 
Doug, you just got back from Haiti. We are wealthy. So I want to talk about some myths, some misguided, erroneous thinking about wealth. The first one is um, the 10% myth, misguided math. Just misguided math, that's it. I'm going to get math and myth mixed up, mixed up here. <laughs> and, you know, this is the third Sunday in a row that I've, that I've shown you Psalm 24.1. You remember that, right? The earth is the Lord's, the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. As we talk about our stewardship, we must start at that point every time. The earth is the Lord's, everything in it. Um, in fact, just over a few pages from uh, Job, you'll find Psalm 50. And in Psalm 50, uh, I, I, I love this little speech from God. I'm not there yet. Psalm 50, verse, verses 9 through 12. God says to Israel, I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds, for every beast of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all the moves of the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world and its fullness are mine. Israel, I want you to bring those things to me as an offering. It's not that I need them. But it's that you need to bring them to me. Misguided math says I own 90% and I'll give God his 10%. Maybe. A second myth is the myth, misguided, misguided perception. Misguided perception. I'm going to call it the happiness myth. And I'm going to have you look at Job again with me. Um, I just have you going back and forth here from Job to Psalms for a little bit. Job chapter 21. The, the the misguided perception about wealth. Job looked at the wicked and he had some problems about how well off they seem to be. Job 21 verse um, 7. Why do the wicked leave, live, reach old age, and grow mighty in power? Their offspring are established in their presence, their descendants before their eyes, their houses are safe from fear. No rod of God is upon them. Their bull breeds without fail. Their cows calve, their cow calves and does not miscarry. They send out their little boys like a flock. And their children dance. They sing to the tambourine and the lyre and rejoice to the sound of the pipe. They spend their days in prosperity. And in peace they go down to Sheol. Uh, all I can say about that is, boy, Job, you sure seem to be bitter. Look at how well off the, the wealthy are. Job, wait a minute, you, you were there once. And that last phrase, they, they go down to, to, to Sheol, they die in peace. Again, back to Psalms, and the psalmist had the very same idea that Job had. 
Psalm 73 is one of the most, no, it's a psalm. <laughs> psalm 73, when, when I have lost perspective, Psalm 73 is a place to go. Psalm 73. It begins, a psalm of Asaph, that's verse 1 in Hebrew, don't, don't skip over those things, okay? A psalm of Asaph. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Oh, we're in for a lesson on God's goodness here. Boy, are we. Now, if I were to ask you to read, you know, read the psalm, we'd, we'd probably read it like that. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Some people get really dramatic and reading. Truly, God is good. Let me let me read it the way I think Asaph was was writing it. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In other words, he's saying, yeah, that's what we're supposed to say. And the reason I say that is because the next verse begins, but as for me, I haven't noticed that. If God is good to Israel, to all the pure in heart, why am I left out? As for me, my steps had almost stumbled, my, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. Why? Verse 3, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And I don't suppose there's one person in this room that's ever thought that before. I look at those who are prosperous and wonder, why ain't I there? Or see that big billboard up with the, what is it, two, three hundred million, whatever it is. If I only had a little chance, boy, I could show God what I could do with that. <laughs> Here's a problem that bothered Asaph, it bothered Job, it bothers you, and it bothers me from time to time. Let's admit it. We so see those who are doing really well off. So here's, here's his idea of the wicked, beginning at verse 4. They have no pangs in their death. Death is no issue to them. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Man, what is he looking at? Um, I mean, therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes bug out, swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak, speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens. Their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are wicked. Always at ease. They increase in riches. That's what they're like. I don't know where he got his information. If he interviewed a few of these wealthy people, um, they have no pangs in their death, really. You ever, you ever Google and just read people's last words? They're bitter, bitter. They're not in trouble. They're they're fat and they're sleek, and they even they even shout out against heaven. They mock God. So in verse 13, the psalmist said, All in vain have I, have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. It's been worth nothing. For all day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. 
And if I had said, I'm going to, I'm going to speak thus, I'm going to share this with all of Israel, I'm, I'm going to tell them the truth, then I would have betrayed the generation of your children. And verse 16 is a magnificent turning point. But you see, uh, it begins truly, God is good to Israel to those who are pure in heart. And he's going to come back to affirm that, but he gets stuck in verse 2 with, but look at the wicked. And now he's back to but again. When I thought to understand this, it seemed to be wearisome to me until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. What, is, what does that mean? Until I went to church? As a pastor, I'd like to say that. The sanctuary of God for the psalmist for Asaph here. To go into the sanctuary there that temple in the wilderness or the Solomon's temple, whatever it would have been. That's where they met God. We don't have to go into this place to meet God. It is extremely good and ought to be one of your highest priorities to come into this place with God's people to meet God. But I would translate that verse saying, when I thought to understand this, it seemed weariness until I came into the presence of God. Do you do that? Don't, don't wait until Sunday. Are you in the presence of God daily? Now, you can read two, three chapters or 50 if you want every morning. That doesn't say you're in the presence of God. You stop and pause and just be in the presence of God. And sometimes it's not like that either. All of our things we have to say, sometimes it's just listen. Until I came into the presence of God, then I understood reality. So here's his view of the wicked now. Truly you set them in wicked places. You make them fall to ruin. How they're destroyed in a moment, swept away by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes. Lord, you rouse yourself. You despise them as phantoms. When my soul was bitter and I was pricked in my heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. So here's his conclusion. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. Misguided perception, the happiness myth. We look out there at people that are wealthy and, and spending money like it, like it grew in their backyard. And we, man, I like to have some of that. But how does our perception of wealth square with biblical truth? Now, it doesn't mean we go from that extreme to say, well, if we're impoverished, then, then we're more godly. I'll get to that in a moment. Do, do we crave to join the ranks of the wealthy? It's a misguided perception. Um, thirdly is a misguided security. I call it the wealth rocks myth. Man, if I just had a little bit of that wealth. Look, look, at, look at what I could do. I, that's my security blanket. The 
the peanuts or one of the characters with his blanket. Linus, thank you. Get my theology straight. <laughs> Psalm 49. Um, Psalm 49, 5 and 6. Why should I fear in times of trouble when the iniquity of those who cheat me surrounds me? Those who trust in their wealth and boast of the abundance of the rich of the riches. For he, God, sees that even the wise die, the fool and the stupid alike must perish and leave their wealth to others. Wealth is worthless in the day of wrath. Um, so, uh, I'm, I'm looking at some Proverbs now. Wealth is worthless in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. Wealth is worthless in the day of wrath. What's, what's the day of wrath? Obviously, when the Lord comes to settle, but you say, well, I'll, I'll, okay, I'll chance waiting till then. No, wealth is worthless in the day of wrath whenever that day might come for you personally. Proverbs 15, verse 6 and 16, In the house of the righteous there is much treasure, but trouble befalls the income of the wicked. Better a little with the fear of the Lord, than great wealth with turmoil. Um, Proverbs 18.11, The wealth of the rich is their fortified city. They imagine it to be an unscalable wall. Look at my wealth around me. Nothing can take me down because I have all this wealth. Proverbs 23, 4 and 5. Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. When your eyes light on it, it is gone, for suddenly it sprouts wings, flying like an eagle toward heaven. Um, turn with me to Proverbs 24. Um, so most of these... Most of these psalms and proverbs that I shared with you say don't seek wealth in and of itself. Don't imagine it to be your security. Don't seek that. And so some would say, as I just mentioned, okay, poverty, is that it? Uh, no, that's the other extreme. Proverbs 24, I call it the parable of the sluggard, verse 30. I pass by the field of a sluggard, by the vineyard of a man lacking sense. And behold, it was all overgrown with thorns. The ground was covered with nettles, and its stone wall was broken down. I saw and considered it. I looked and received instruction. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. We should read that every morning in church, right? Oh, that went over like a river there. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. In other words, the scripture says, don't seek wealth as your security. But the scripture says, uh, if you are lazy, uh, a fool, a sluggard, there's going to be poverty come upon you. Uh, some people may lose wealth. Uh, through no fault of their own. The stock market takes a crash, whatever it might be. But this guy just folded his hands and he's sitting under a tree looking around. And he doesn't do a thing. In the New Testament, 
says if a guy doesn't work, doesn't work, neither should he eat. If a guy doesn't work, then don't put him on the roll of your church to receive um, help. He's not helping himself. So it's that extreme. Let me give you, these aren't uh, scripture here, but let me give you some words from some of the richest people that were on earth. John Jacob Astor was America's first multimillionaire. He was the richest man in America until his death on the Titanic. He said, I am the most miserable man on earth. John D. Rockefeller, also the richest man in America at that time, at his death said, I have made millions. They brought me no happiness. W.H. Vanderbilt, the care, the care of 200 million is enough to kill anyone. There is no pleasure in it. I keep wanting to say, God, give me a little bit. I'll, I'll show him different. Really? Andrew Carnegie, millionaires seldom smile. And Henry Ford. Uh, Logan, I'm dedicating this one to you, okay? Henry Ford said, I was happier when I was doing a mechanic's job. Now I'm making millions of cars. I'm unhappy. By the way, my father was a mechanic and Alice Chalmers tractors for all his life. And I think I grew up in poverty, but I didn't know it then. Didn't matter. The fourth, misguided priorities. The me first myth. The me first myth. Proverbs 13.7 says one, uh, I'm sorry, Proverbs 3.9, honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruit of all your produce. With that word first fruit, that's where I come up with that me first myth because first fruit doesn't say me first. God says, I want you to honor me with the first. What did first fruits mean? The the word itself means beginning or chief, the highest, the best. Um, Leftovers may be a wife's duty in marriage but not with God. Guys, she has a duty to feed you leftovers every once in a while, okay? But when we give God our leftovers, our heart is not there. God said to Israel, I I want the very best, I want the first. In other words, uh, the first son, dedicate him to me. I want the first of your your crop, bring it as an offering. Um, I want the first of your livestock, Bring it as an offering. And by the way, you got a lamb that uh, has a broken leg? Don't bring it into the, into the sanctuary to me. I want one without blemish. I want a lamb without blemish to pay for your sin. I'm looking way down the road, a lamb without blemish paid for our sin. In fact, that concept of first fruits comes over into the New Testament. In Romans chapter 8, Paul says, we are the first fruits. We have the first fruits of the Holy Spirit, meaning as Christians, the very first thing 
the, the priority for us, we have received the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 15 talks about Jesus Christ as firstfruits. In what, in, in what area? Well, 1 Corinthians 15 says, uh, Paul says, okay, there's a rumor going around among you. In fact, it's become a teaching among you that there is no such thing as resurrection of the dead. Okay. I want you to think that through with me logically. If there is no such thing as resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. If Christ has not been raised, we are foolish and liars because we have taught that he's been raised and he has not been raised if there's no such thing as resurrection of the dead. And by the way, you, you smart theologians that say Jesus is not, there's no such thing as resurrection of the dead, then all your loved ones that you bid goodbye to, Eric just told us we'd see them again. Paul would say, nah, not going to see them again if there's no such thing as resurrection from the dead. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, Paul says. And he is the first fruits. Meaning what? If there's first fruits, there's more to follow. He's the first. You and I will follow. What a promise. He's the first fruit. Um, Paul mentioned first fruits in 2 Thessalonians 2.13, that we are the first fruits among... The, the Thessalonians were among the first fruits to be saved, to, to uh, experience salvation. And we have followed in that footstep also. So misguided priorities that put me and my things first when instead God says, honor me with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Say, I don't grow a garden. <laughs> That's okay. You receive a wage, a, wa a, wedge, a wage. That's your first fruit that you bring to God. The first part of it belongs to Him. Not at the end of the month when there's just a little bit left over the beginning. And finally, as a misguided purpose, I call it the fool or tool myth. Fool or the tool. Proverbs 13, 7, uh, Solomon says, one man pretends to be rich, yet has nothing. Another man tends to be poor, yet has great wealth. And 20 chap uh, verse 22, that same chapter, a good man leaves an inheritance for his children's children, but a sinner's wealth is stored up for the righteous. 22.16, he who oppresses the poor to increase his wealth, and he who gives gifts to the rich, both come to poverty. Wealth is a tool to be used. A, a fool takes his wealth and just spends and spends and spends, and usually on himself. I hope none of you have that bumper sticker on your big RV. You've, you've followed a lot behind these big RVs sometimes that have the bumper sticker, I'm spending my, inherit, my children's inheritance. <laughs> and they're not getting anything from me. A good man leaves an inheritance for his children's children. His grandchildren. I can be a fool and use my wealth for myself. Or I can use it as a tool to help others. Um, if you get bitten by a snake, what's the first thing you want? What's your first hope? You want to get to the hospital as fast as you can. You want the antidote. You want the antidote. I'm going to give you the antidote for these misguided misperceptions. 
I'm going to give you the antidote for these. I'll just put them all up there. What, what's the misguided, what's the antidote to misguided math that, that God owns 10%? Well, it's simply the understanding that God owns 100%. The earth is the Lord's. He owns it as creator. I'm his steward. And here's the antidote to that misguided math. I will determine to be a good steward of what I give and of what I keep. You see, often we say, okay, here's this 10% for God. Take care of it. But look what I get. I have to be a good steward of that other 90%. Or some have been blessed to the point where they give 50% to the Lord and keep 50%. Or 90, whatever it is. I have to be a good steward of what I keep also. So what do I spend it on? What kind of stuff do I need to fill up my storage space? What kind of entertainment do I spend it on? i got to ask all these questions. It's mine. No, all of it belongs to God. So I am a steward of what I give and of what I keep. Secondly, antidote for misguided perception that, that money will make me happy. The happiness myth. Well, I, I just need to have some right thinking and right acting about happiness. God is a source of my happiness. So here's the antidote. I will challenge my misguided thinking on the spot. That's hard to do. When I start thinking otherwise, that oh, this would make me happy, and this would make me happy, and this would make me happy, i got to hit, as we talked in Sunday school, i got to hit the pause button. Wait a minute. Where's my happiness? This, this mis, myth got, misguided perception that money makes me happy? Stop. Third, misguided security. The wealth rocks myth. It's only our relationship that God, with God that will count now and on Judgment Day. The antidote to this mis, myth I'll throw this sermon away and start over next time. The antidote to a misguided security is this, to learn to hold life and wealth loosely. God, it's mine. It's mine. No, it's, it's yours. And I will use it to bless, not as my security. Not to hold it tight as my security, but to say, Lord, it's all yours. And the last myth, misguided purpose, the fool or tool myth, it will say, after my monthly bills, I'll give something to God. No, the highest and the best deserves our highest and best. First things, not, not leftovers. So I need to discipline myself to give God first, first. That means actually writing the first check, do it. Misguided purpose, wealth is to use and to increase. I need to determine to use wealth as my tool to bring good into the lives of family and friends and around the world. I read of a man called Jack Whitaker who won the Powerball lottery jackpot 
Over 314 million we won it on Christmas Day. Isn't that something? 2002. Then he described the next 10 years of his life. Granddaughter and boyfriend died from apparent drug overdose. His daughter passed away. He was robbed on several occasions. Obvious. He was arrested himself for DUI. Would have never thought of this. He was sued by several people. <laughs> All of a sudden, to become wealthy, you have lots of long-lost cousins, don't you? But he was also sued by Caesars Atlantic Casino for $1.5 million in bounced checks for gambling losses. You just got $314 million and you're gambling? I think I've put this passage in the, in the bulletin for you. Write this down somewhere. Put it up on your fridge, your mirror, your, your refrigerator where you go the most often. Make this your prayer. Make this your prayer. This is beautiful. Solomon said, I'm sorry, this isn't Solomon. Asaph, I believe. Let me get my name right. Agar, the words of Agar, Proverbs 30. Two things I ask of you, deny them not to me before I die. Number one, remove far from me falsehood and lying. Make me to be a person of truth. And secondly, um, give me neither poverty nor riches, but feed me with the food that is need needful for me. Lest I be full, rich, full, and deny you and say, who is the Lord? or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. See these two extremes? Two things. Make me truthful and give me neither poverty nor riches. I just want to be kind of average, kind of normal in there. I don't want to get so wealthy and fat and sassy I say, who's the Lord? And I don't want to get poor and steal and profane your name. How do I do all this? I'm going to recommend you take inventory. Write down everything that's yours, and not in just terms of material stuff. The talents, the abilities, the strengths that you have, that you're yours. God gave you specifically. And secondly, your finances, assets, resources, include them in there. And then we all have, you know, well, we all have 24 hours in a day, really, every one of us. Um, energy, our word, all those things, take inventory. What or how much am I giving to God? And how am I using what I keep? It's all God's. How am I using what I keep? Here's what you and I need to do. Number one, we need to settle the ownership issue. The earth is the Lord's. And secondly, we need to settle the stewardship issue. Here's what I have from God. I am to be a faithful steward of what he has given me. Here's what I have from God. And thirdly, I need to settle the wealth issue. God has given me wealth. Um, thank him for it. Use it wisely. Um, 
Don't waste your, your days, your hours, your even minutes thinking about how well off the wealthy are and how poor is you, how poor is me. Settle the ownership issue. Settle the stewardship issue. And I think that will settle the wealth issue. Father, thank you so much for your, your goodness to us. We, we are wealthy. For some reason, you have let us settle here rather than some of the poorest countries of the world. You've granted us that wealth. You've granted us life in you. And you've given us words from this book to teach us. So, Father, may we learn well. May you, by your Spirit, put your finger on those points that may be hurt a little bit. I want to give you all of the glory. You deserve it all. You are holy. You are worthy of all of our gifts. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.